Leadership Arts Review, a dynamic podcast about the art and science of leadership. Join us as we explore a different leadership book each episode. We'll help you navigate all the theories and strategies out there and find the elements that work for you. We'll share what we liked, what we learned, and what we recommend. I'm Kate. I'm Nitya. I'm Alyssa. In this episode, we will be discussing Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Reboot is an executive coaching session, or several, in a book. Using a blend of entrepreneurial straight talk, Buddhism, and therapeutic principles, Jerry Colonna walks leaders through a series of stories to help them realize they are not alone in their struggles, and questions to help them unpack the psychological and behavioral habits that have gotten them where they are and are now holding them back. In the spirit of what got you here won't get you there, Jerry Colonna invites us to reboot, reset, and soar. Thanks for diving in and reading this book with me because it's a different kind of book than any of the other ones that we've read because it's this weird mix of intense psychological theory, Buddhist practice, and deep personal story, both Jerry Colonna's personal story and the personal stories that he's gotten permission to share from his clients. The first time I read this book, I listened to it. I didn't read it. And it was like having a coaching session. I started listening to it driving and I ended up being like, this is not a driving book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think it's captured in the subtitle of the book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. And that art of growing up piece is huge. Starting to read it and reading his main point that better humans make better leaders. I was like, I'm all in. I totally am on board with that. All of the work that we do when we talk about leadership has to do with really looking at your whole life and all of this. So I was like, great, I'm all in. And then it got really hard. (laughs) Then it just kept going like deeper and deeper. And I was just thinking, wow, I'm not sure I want to have a conversation that's recorded and then just out there. And I'm going to put my trust in our little bubble here to have this conversation and know that it will be what it will be. And as we talk about it, I know that all three of us are going to find and probably bring up small parts that really, for lack of a better word, hooked us for a bit and really gave us something to look at more deeply. I'm right there with you, Alyssa. Thanks for naming that this was a hard one and it got me feeling pretty raw at moments, not only because of how deep it asks us to go, but a lot of the specific examples and stories that he shares from his own life or from the lives of his friends or from historical figures, they resonated so much with me as all of these people went back in time and explored their childhoods, their past traumas, their old habits, their patterns that persist and how it affects their current psychology in the workplace. And it really hit home in a lot of ways. So thank you for that. And and I'm also trusting this space with the two of you. Thank you. So the two of you came to this book new and I have read it many times and I have thought about it many times. And so that puts us in different places. And I think it's worth acknowledging that because the response that you are describing now is exactly why I listened to it the first time and I immediately went back and listened to it again. I was so deep in it. I couldn't 
walk away from it. I knew that I was being touched in ways that were improving me that I wanted more of. And I couldn't put a name on how. So I just went back in and I stayed in because I was hooked. One of the things that struck out to me this last time I read it that I had completely forgotten about is early on in the introduction, he talks about speaking to a group of CEOs and putting a formula on the board. And the formula he put on the board was practical skills development plus radical self-inquiry plus shared experiences equals enhanced leadership and greater resiliency. And what you are pointing to, what my experience was reading this book is the shared experiences. Like these stories hook us because we're not alone. Yeah. yeah. And the telling of these stories opens up that we're not alone in the places where we think we're most lonely. Yeah. Well said. And the term radical self-inquiry is a powerful one and a loaded one because it challenges us then to go beyond maybe what we would cling to, which is the theories and the frameworks and all the great stuff the three of us have explored on every other episode of this podcast. And and, and they're great. And I recommend them. And also I think radical self-inquiry says, okay, that's great. But instead of looking outside, look inside and realize that you're not alone. And that it's only if all of us slow down and look inside that we'll feel less alone. Otherwise, we'll all just be kind of floating on the surface with our theories and our strategies and our business decisions and all the rest of it. It's interesting too, I think the timing of our reading this, I think there's been more discussion around shared experiences Mm. as we've all lived through this pandemic. And the idea that we're all sharing uncertainty and disruption and many of us are sharing isolation and all sorts of different things that are being talked about more than previously. And I'm sure, like me, a lot of people have pointed you to the New York Times article about languishing. Yes. yes. Which I found so interesting because I didn't realize probably until my second time through it that it's written by Adam Grant. Yeah. <laughs> Our old friend. So <laughs> Last episode. Right. So the timing of that was really interesting. And the fact that that is an article in the New York Times that so many people have been posting it on their social media or telling friends about it. So the idea that there is more talk about the shared experience because we're all going through something we've never experienced before. Yeah. You know, it's interesting sort of layering that with the piece about radical and radical self-inquiry, because one of the things that I've been seeing quite a lot in the last six to nine months is I'm running across people who've read all of the leadership books, who have incorporated all of the ideas, but not actually done the work of self-inquiry. So they say all of the things that make me feel like they know what I'm talking about, but it's just on the surface. And the thing about the radicalness of the self-inquiry is it's this compassionate, not flinching from the parts of ourselves that are most challenged, most vulnerable, often most brilliant. So many of us have shame around our greatest strengths because they showed up in ways where they weren't welcome the first time we dared show them, or we were so talented early on in that area that we got to expect perfection from ourselves. And we got shame around the fact that going from good to great, even if you've got natural talent actually requires practical skills development, and that can be hard. So there's this shared space of like, 
how can we actually care for ourselves through this pandemic? How can we actually do the work? And also it's hard. It is really hard. Even those who may be listening to this going, no, I'm willing to do the hard work. I'm willing to go deep, still may fall prey to that thing of the cleaned up or polished version of ourselves. Some of us do that when we look back at our childhoods or at past lives, so to speak, we do try and see ourselves either in the most positive light or just in the, in the light that's easiest to digest. Confronting the stuff that's ugly actually helps us understand why we do things the way we do today. In case anyone's wondering, well, gee, why, why do this? Why confront it? Why go there? It's because I think this book argues the answer to the question, why am I the kind of leader that I am? Why do I do things the way I do? Why do I react to certain things in the workplace? Why does some stuff just get me all twisted up in a knot? Or why do certain types of colleagues trigger me? Even just why did I act that way in that meeting? A lot of those things can can be answered by looking within and going deep. One example that I have has to do with a workshop I've given in the past on giving feedback. And it was intended for individual contributors and for managers to build that culture of feedback amongst each other. And I remember asking the group, what is it like to receive feedback in the workplace? And almost universally, people said, I'm great with feedback. Just get it to me straight. <laughs> you know, be direct. <laughs> and so when it came to that question of how do you like to receive feedback? Everybody said, what do you mean? I just, just give it to me. I, I can take it. Be direct. I like it direct and specific and in the moment. <laughs> and I started to feel like people were saying that because that's what they're expected to say, because it's the workplace. And we did some work in that discussion to peel back some layers. And the way we did that is I, myself, as the facilitator of that workshop volunteered, I hate receiving critical feedback. <laughs> it's really hard. I know that it's important. I know that it has benefits and I could go on about that for a while, but in the moment when someone does have something critical to say about something I've worked hard on, it hurts and I get mad <laughs> internally. And so it is a process to have to overcome that and say, okay, what can I then take from this? And, and where do I go in this conversation is a choice I have to make in the moment. And instead of looking at that going, God, why am I so sensitive? Why can't I just be more thick skinned? The radical self-inquiry involves saying, you know what? What? There was an expectation of perfection as a kid. There were incredibly high standards and errors were not really embraced or welcomed or celebrated the way we, we talk about the fact that they should be. And so I've internalized that. And so now any piece of feedback, small or large, is hard and feels like an indictment on me as a person, even when it isn't necessarily. Um, so that's an example of the kind of work I have tried to do through the learnings in this book. Uh -huh. He talks about specifically people he calls overachievers and the idea yeah. that many of us do go through life figuring out what do I have to do to get the A? And so the objective measurements that become important, we figure out how to do that and having to look at things in a different way and that it's not as much about the outcome as about the process and about what we learn along the way. And that's a really big shift for many of us. Yeah. I think one of the things that he points out and he uses uh, the image of crows and loyal soldiers, which I just love because 
Um, they're so mythopoetic compared to some of the other language that gets used for these sorts of parts of our personality. But we have parts of ourselves that have worked really, really hard to make us succeed in circumstances that are different than the circumstances we are in now. And we got really good at dealing with whatever the challenges were, particularly in our childhood. Those are the oldest and the most firmly rooted in our personality. Whatever our childhood circumstance was, we got got good at navigating that because it was the circumstance we had to navigate in. And the crow is the inner voice going, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. Why are you doing that? And the loyal soldier is the one that is, even though the enemy isn't right here right now, and I can't see the fight, I know the fight is going on out there in the world. And so I'm going to protect you from that. And I'm going to hold my post for as long as I'm here. And our circumstances have changed what it takes to succeed now is different than what it took to succeed then. We actually have to dismantle the habit of calling on those skills and create a new habit or set of habits using skills that are underdeveloped because they're not the ones that we've been practicing for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah, I'm reminded in this example of Brene Brown's Dare to Lead, which is the first book we read. And she talks about brave or daring leadership versus armored leadership. That's what came to mind when you mentioned the loyal soldier, especially Kate, is that may be our default because that's what served us at one point in time. And it's still around. I also love that the solution presented in Reboot is not get rid of the loyal soldier or get rid of the crow, <laughs> you know, don't shoot the crow. A, they're always going to be around and we might as well accept that. And B, often they can be a great indicator of what's going on. So if we feel that our loyal soldier is in full force <laughs> trying to protect us from something, which happens to me quite a lot, I get into that defensive mode, it helps to stop and say, hey, my loyal soldier has woken up, wonder what's going on here that has caused that to happen. Is it because I'm entering into new territory? Is it because I'm feeling like there is someone around me, a stakeholder, a manager, whoever, who's causing an old dynamic to resurface, maybe an old pattern to replicate itself. And is my soldier running to protect me in that dynamic? That type of inquiry is often more fun and illuminating than saying, let me get rid of those. Yeah. Yeah. He points at a couple of ways that we can understand what the crows and the loyal soldiers are helping us with in terms of telling some of the stories from the leadership boot camps that he runs. He talks about shame, which once again gets us in the same territory as Brené Brown. He talks about the warrior pose of the strong back and the exposed soft front, which is also very much like an image that she uses. But the thing that really struck me in terms of shame is he tells a story of talking to a really tough leader who was dealing with a tough person in their organization and was resistant to the work that was being done. And he says, tell me about the shame and tell me about the promise that you made to yourself. And that promise that he made to himself as the leader faced that, it was a promise from childhood about, I'm never going to let that happen again. And whatever that was, like we've got a crow and we've got a soldier who we're going to fight to not let that ever happen again. 
in terms of the stories that stick with us, that hook us, that resonate with us, that reading this book brings up, that was one for me. I spent 25 years of my life living out a promise that I made in a dark night in a hospital bed. I had just gotten through a life-threatening circumstance that I had caused. And my father was sitting in my room crying with relief that I had gotten through it. And I promised myself that I would never make my father cry again. And for 10 years, that was a really, really valuable thing because it stopped me from doing the self-destructive things that had gotten me in trouble in the first place. And then for about 15 years, it stopped me taking any risks at all. And I got in my own way. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I need to do some more work to find those stories. And what was coming through for me was the fact that I think so often I stay at the surface. There was one particular sentence that just stuck out to me, which is the feeling that it's too scary to be alone with your own thoughts. I think that that is something that can cause a lot of us to not do this work. To be completely honest, it made me want to seek out someone to do this work with, to say, you know what? I know there's stuff hiding there. I know there's stuff that I can learn from. I know that there's some different frames I can put on some things. And I also know that it's not something I can do myself because I've tried and I've avoided I think that was a big takeaway for me from this book of just reading through someone's story and saying, you know what, this is possible, this can be helpful, and stop thinking that it's something that's just going to happen with a little bit of introspection. And I think that's the difference between the radical self-inquiry and a little bit of introspection. And I'm going to seek that out. And it's scary to say that on a recording. That's huge, Alyssa. And I'm thinking of something else said in the book around being comfortable with the truth. That came to my mind as you were speaking, because doing this deep inner work to uncover some of these stories and uncover the patterns and the demons then asks us to be okay with sitting with those for a little while and saying, yep, this is, this is real. This is why I am who I am and big reason for the reason I make decisions. Yeah, sitting with that truth and countering the avoidance tendency, which I know I, I have as well, is sort of that next step and, and is equally hard to do. Yeah. One of the things that I really appreciate about this book is his honesty with the help that he got, because his job is as a coach helping CEOs do this work. And one of the things that those of us who function as coaches often have projected onto us is that we don't have to do our own work. And he has made it clear he talks about going to see his therapist. He talks about, you know, years and years and years of therapy. And he talks about a time that it's quite likely that his therapist saved his life. So that transparency about who he got help from was super validating. I do actually need my coaches the way that my clients need me, that actually this is not work that we can do for ourselves at the deepest levels. I think that we do get better and better at doing it for ourselves, but the stuff that really scares us always takes us to a place where having someone who can hold the container for us and make it safe for us to look at the truth a little closer goes a long way. 
I know that he uses the language too, but I'm also struck by the fact that we just in this conversation use the word sitting with the truth because three of the mentors that he talks about so often in this book are people who literally sit with the truth. One of the things that made me realize I was totally not alone when I was listening to this is he tells a story about going to take a break and go to Canyon Ranch for a couple of weeks. And his sister gives him three books, a Parker Palmer book, uh, Let Your Life Speak, Pema Children. When Things Fall Apart and Sharon Salzberg's Faith. Parker Palmer is a Quaker. So the Quakers sit (laughs) and the Buddhists sit. I had not read Faith until this book. And both that Pema Chodron book and that Parker Palmer book were books that were transformative in my life. So I felt real sort of like, oh, I'm not alone. And then he talks about how he read them. And for about four years, all he did was stay on the surface. Yeah. And then he was at a session where Pema Chodron was there in person and she's talking about letting things go. And he's like, I got this. And then she does the thing where she's like, and some of you are sitting there thinking that you got that. (laughs) And that understanding is falling apart right now too. And he was cracked open. But like, yeah, we don't do this work on ourselves easily. And we don't always do this work easily with someone else either. Early on in my coaching practice, I had a whole bunch of clients who had had failed experiences with therapy and their failed experience with therapy mirrored my failed experience with therapy. The pattern was that they had needed to protect a parental figure from the depth of their own suffering because the parent didn't know how to handle the child having a big emotional reaction to things. And so these clients did what I had done when I was in therapy, which was I told my therapist just enough that my therapist had a sense that I was being open and vulnerable (laughs) and I never had to go through the hard stuff. Yeah. It's possible, right, to engage intellectually with something and feel the sense and give others like therapists the sense that you got it Yep. and yet have that sink no lower than the brain. You're just staying totally cerebral there. Yeah. Yeah. One question that he repeats throughout the book, and it's it's kind of sneaky to me, it, it's kind of there and then it keeps coming back. So it becomes something you just cannot ignore is how am I complicit in the situation that I don't want? That question could send someone spinning a little bit. And yet if we do take that out of the brain and bring it into the body, which he also gives some very specific examples of working with his clients in terms of where are you feeling this in the body and what's coming up and what is that reaction? It brings up a lot in terms of knowing that we do have choice. So first looking at that, how am I complicit? And then knowing that we have the choice to not be complicit. We have the choice to recognize that. And I really liked all of his information, all of his writing about the other, Mm. the irrational other, and how we tend to go outward with whatever is happening and how much value there is in turning that inward and saying, what's my responsibility for what's going on here? It goes back a little bit to what I think a lot of us were taught as kids of, you know, worry about yourself or the idea that you can't control others. You can only control your reaction or your response. Going deep as we've been talking about of where am I? complicit? And then what does it mean for me to choose something different, to not depend on others to grow me, but to take advantage of what others present to me and what they provoke in me to go through that growth myself? 
This time that I read through the book, I realized how many different ways he phrases the how am I complicit question. It always starts with how am I complicit in creating? And then he describes it differently. It's always that same piece of like, whatever it is that I'm complaining about. That was the question that stuck with me the first time I read it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. This time as I was reading it, I was seeing it more clearly because I had a little bit more distance from the material. And I realized that I think it's only once that he then follows that question with how is it serving me? I think that's a really valuable question to ask as a follow-up question. How am I complicit? The question is going for like, what is the unconscious thing that I'm doing that's contributing to this situation? Right. It's not coming from a place of blame. It's It's not not saying, what are you doing wrong? Yeah. Right. It's compassionate inquiry, looking closely, investigating these habits that are so longstanding that we don't even know where they come from. They just feel like this is how we are in the world. This is, this is just how the world is. This is normal. So the first thing is, how am I helping create this thing that I'm complaining about? And then how is it serving me? Because part of having choice is having the choice to keep doing it, right? Like maybe the situation is actually the best that it can be right now. And maybe it has actually a choice that if you were consciously making the choice again, rather than making it habitually, maybe it is the right choice because maybe it does serve you more than it's costing you. And maybe it's not. I think it's really powerful to have that compassion that like it did help these crows, these loyal soldiers, these habits, we developed them for a reason. They were the way we had impact in a way that we needed to have impact at a certain time in our lives. And maybe we still do. And maybe we still don't. And what that makes me think of is leaders who will describe the cultures in their workplaces or the dynamics they have with their teams or their own managers as this is just the way it is. And maybe, (laughs) but not necessarily. It could be that there is a pattern that you are without realizing it, reinforcing and perpetuating and turning that into a cycle. And by the way, that can happen across the course of a career, not just within one job. I know I can say for a fact that when I look back at people I have found difficult in the workplace (laughs) or relationships I've had with managers, they kind of tend to group themselves into a certain category. They, They kind of tend to look the same because I know that a certain pattern replicates itself because I'm complicit in the replication I'm sure there are people who can look at even romantic relationships and say the same thing, that there's this pattern that emerges because of old habits, but we're not a prisoner to those patterns either. You know, as leaders, we have that choice to break out of that, choose a new pattern or just be aware of it. And, you know, I'm coming back to the title of the book, which is Reboot. When I hear reboot, I think about a machine, right? A laptop rebooting or something like that. That analogy is used in the book too, that there's old code. <laughs> the engineers will understand this reference that sometimes there is old code that is latent in a new version of a program and no longer serves the new version of the program. In fact, may get in the way, but it's like sticking around. I think they call it ghost machines or something. Ghost in the machine. Ghost in the machine. There you go. And, um, and it takes work to go back and hunt through all the code and say, what, what did I leave where? And, and why Mm. is this still messing with (laughs) with the machine now? And to deal with that, it requires digging through some stuff. It doesn't just present itself. Yeah. I'm thinking about the development of organizational culture and not just sort of leadership as an individual, as you're talking about that, because there's culture that serves an organization at a certain stage in its development that doesn't serve later. So for instance, startup culture is very often hard scrabble, everybody in, we've got a limited amount of resources, a limited amount of 
time in which to prove that we've got a thing that is actually going to sell. We're under pressure by the limited resources and we all have to do a bit of everything because there's not an organization to take care of everything. And then as the organization grows, you actually have to get more specific about role allocation so that you're not duplicating the wrong effort and letting things slip through the cracks. Then the people who really thrive on that high pressure energy of the like, here's the brand new thing and we don't even know whether we can make it happen will often fade away because the extra pieces of structure take the fun out of it for them. And so as individuals, they have a choice about whether they want to mature with the organization or find another organization that's in the startup phase. And that's a personal choice that they have to make. And an organization that gets too big without putting systems in ends up with bizarre things happening in the culture and weird entanglements that if you get too big, you can never untangle. And it ends up being sort of a longstanding institutional problem. The other thing that happens is if you and your buddy get together, and I guess in this day and age, it's not in your garage, but it's communicating on Slack or Discord and uh, (laughs) work on building something. And you decide that you need to diversify your thinking and you want to get some people who see the world differently or think differently in to work with you, you actually have to learn how to work with them. And it's not as easy or comfortable as your buddy that you already thought the same with. So once again, growing up and maturity in a culture space, not just an individual level, what got you here won't get you there. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. What got you there was necessary to get you here. Yes. So honor that, that you need something else at this moment in time. I love the callback to growing up because there is this misconception too in organizational culture and in leadership culture that quote unquote growing up in a career sense or or even in life means being less emotional, being more independent. Knowing all the answers. Knowing all the answers. There you go. Yeah. All these things that are honestly pitfalls and just, you know, it's it's, it's all misguided, but that's what we're taught. and, And that's actually the work, Kate, that I've had to do in my own life and in work is reckoning with the fact that I have told myself and my life experiences have taught me that independence is everything. Depend on no one, ask for help from no one, because that's what I learned from early difficult experiences. And as you said, it served me for a while. It got me to a certain point. And now the work I'm having to do both at work and in life is grow a level of comfort uh, and openness to asking for help, certainly, but but also kind of having a, a healthy dependence on other people. I think we have a sense of what unhealthy dependence may look like, but I have let the fear of unhealthy dependence get in the way of a certain healthy attachment and, and dependence. And knowing that about myself means that it's now a lifelong practice to say, how can I cultivate that in my personal life? And how can I cultivate that at work as well, where it's easy to say, I'm not here to make friends and I'm just here to do work. And no, no, you need other people to do what you're doing. And it's okay to depend on others. That's what this is all about. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I loved about all of the stories that got told, and it's so powerful because they're all from people who are running companies, you know, lots of small, medium, some of them large companies, but the stories are mostly from people who are running companies and they've all gone through this high achiever growth pattern of something happened, pushed them into, I'm going to drive forward by myself and make this thing happen. And now they're in places where they're working with others and they have to learn how to have that healthy interdependence. It's really scary. If your base memories about dependence 
are that I get invalidated or that there's nobody there or that I get forgotten or not seen or made wrong or any of the things that we armor up to protect ourselves from. Um, we strive out on our own. Um, he talks about how many leaders had that, that it just becomes habitual, that we're going to drive forward on our own and get things done until we get to the point that we're driving away everyone who's working with us because they see that we'd rather do it ourselves, <laughs> says she telling a story that she's unlearning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what happens if we change our frame of reference for collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I find myself working with a lot of teams and starting with the idea of what are your own strengths? What are the things that you bring? And I know he has some writing in here about looking at our own strengths. And then this idea of really connecting with people and seeing the other people for who they are as a whole and what are their strengths. And and reframing that collaboration as opposed to a competition of whose idea is going to win. And I created this company and therefore it has to be my vision. The idea of relaxing that kind of the concept he brings in of relaxing your gaze yep. and allowing for other people's light, other people's strengths to join with yours and create something that is bigger than the sum of its parts. And that's a tough thing to do. To Nithya's point about asking for help, to saying, you know, I have things to contribute here and I don't have all the answers. And I know that if we come together and create a space where we are all contributing, that we will actually build something that we're not even aware yet that it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious, what did you all think of the anecdote where he introduces the concept of a do-over? I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Just to share what it was, he talks about a childhood game he used to play where, and I'm sure any of you can think of this, whether you played football or soccer or basketball, or it hardly matters what the sport is. And you end up in sort of a, a jam because there's disagreement on whether you got the point or their team got the point, or was it a foul or was it not? a foul there's just some sort of a jam and you can't move forward from that spot and so he shared that somebody would just yell do over and you just get to hit reset and start it all over that's the, the concept of reboot of course and that came to my mind as you both have been sharing of we have the option to do that we don't have to dig our heels in and stay stuck if we get stuck it's okay and we can forgive ourselves and others the mistakes that have been made and say all right now it's time to start over and write a new story yeah. The question about strategic retreat is also language that he uses that, yeah, like sometimes pushing forward is not the way to move in the direction you want to go. Of course, we had an entire conversation last month about how hard this is and, <laughs> and the kinds of tools that you need to do it. And yes, I mean, how often is, all right, stop, pause, begin again, what needs to happen? I was having flashbacks to our shared experiences of doing some exercises that were facilitated by someone who was so calm and the exercise would be something and we would make a mistake or we would hit an obstacle. And some of us in our group would get very frustrated and our facilitator would just very calmly say, begin again. Yep. And so I know Kate, that was going through your head as well when you just use those words, but that idea that we can always begin again, we can choose in the morning 
morning that today we're going to begin again. We can also choose in the moment to say, begin again. And I think that's part of accepting the messiness of life and the messiness that he talks about and the fact that you only grow by getting messy. And sometimes it may get so messy that the best thing to do is begin again. Yeah. And to me, this also has deep resonances with his Buddhist teachers. So many of my meditation teachers uh, would talk about the moment, the reason you call it practice is because you lose your point of focus and you have to start back again, getting the focus, whatever your point of focus is, wherever you are in the process of development, you've got a point of focus, a thing that you're working on and you lose it and you have to come back to it. And that's the practice, whether you're practicing, focusing on the breath or letting go of attachment to focusing on the breath, which is, you know, a more advanced stage. You start by focusing on the breath and then you relax that. So that, that piece of like the practice of do-overs and in the tech world, there's this fail fast mantra of like, get something out there, see if it works. If it doesn't work, it's better to know now and do it over again and have a strategic retreat and try something else than it is to invest a lot of time in it and then discover that it was a bad idea in the first place. Yeah. I suppose then one of the things that gets in the way of failing fast, rebooting, giving yourself that compassion to say, it's all good. Let's just choose something different is, well, certainly an attachment to perfection. I'm sure is one of the things that gets in the way, but um, sensing a theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and another thing that I'm sure gets in the way for some folks is, is a sunk cost fallacy that like, okay, we, we've put all this effort into this one thing, you know, we can't turn back now. Um, because there's a fear of what would that say about us, if yeah. we were to admit that all of this effort didn't go in the direction we ultimately want. So we have to start over, we have to go in a different direction. And people fear what that says about themselves. And the truth is, all it would say if you were to pivot is it says, okay, you have the agility and the flexibility to turn and go in a different direction. Good for you. That's all it says. But people, I think, assume that it says something else. And so they dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And that just, it doesn't serve. Right. And we're back in shame land. Like if you've been shamed for being wishy-washy for changing your mind in the past, then the idea of strategic retreat, it's a major like, whoa, I can actually be strategic about changing my mind. And that, that can be a good thing. Like that's a reset. And now to put this book on the tree of leadership wisdom. Is this book at the roots, foundational knowledge? Is it the trunk, main body of practical wisdom? Or is it branches and specific tools? So I was thinking about this from our metaphor of a tree, and I wavered a bit. Because at first I thought, this is a roots book. This is going back to our childhoods. It's talking about deeply held beliefs. And then where I actually landed was on this being a trunk book, specifically because of the way he writes about the fact that we can't change our roots. And his reboot writing is all about how we decide on a daily basis to build on our roots, to take what we learn from our roots and put that into action and look at that in terms of how we stand up every day. That was good. Right? <laughs> I just forfeit mine and just say plus one to that.
No, that's I really, I was thinking about that this morning and I was like, he, you know, he goes deep. So it would make sense from a metaphor perspective to say this is a roots book, but it's really about what we decide to grow out of those roots. I mean, one of the things that makes me agree with you is all of the coaching questions that are strewn all the way through this book, they're designed to provoke radical self-inquiry on a continuing basis. The approach of radical self-inquiry can be a foundational approach, but these tools are like, okay, ask yourself this question, ask yourself this question, ask yourself this question. And that's a daily practice. I also agree with you, Alyssa. I'm reminded of something we learned during our training as coaches, which is you can only take your clients as deep as you're willing to go yourself. Mm. And I believe the same is true about leaders and anyone who is in charge of a big operation or a large group of people. You can't really expect those around you to do that work and to produce not just quality product, but a great culture and a thriving set of relationships if you yourself aren't willing to do what it takes to get there. And for me, that puts this in the trunk category because it leaves you, if not totally in charge of, at least it gives you a sense of control over what branches out in the future and what grows in the future. You have that option to say, I could either just let this grow by default and do nothing, or I can hold myself to the same standards that I expect of other people and do the deep work and guide where these branches grow. Um, Yeah, good stuff. And now it's think away time. Each of our hosts will leave us with one thought, idea, question, or practice to think about and take away. My think away has to do with this great anecdote about how a herd of horses chooses their leader. I love the anecdote because when horses are deciding among themselves in this unspoken way who their leader is, they don't go for who is the bravest or strongest or most muscular or any of the other things you might expect. They go with the one who takes care of the group, the one that they can rely on to say this horse, if there's a crisis, is going to care for us. So my my think away is based off that anecdote, which is where might you have the opportunity in your life, in your work, in your leadership to be that kind of a leader, the one that people look to when the team needs taking care of. Um, And that might require some unlearning of how you see yourself as a leader. And it might require you to flex muscles that you don't normally flex at work. That's my challenge is to become that kind of lead horse. I like that. Yeah. Mine comes from the chapter handprints on the Canyon wall. He talks about how so many of these models talk about going up and to the right. And the idea that there's a path to your purpose and the question of what if being lost is part of the path. Thinking about that also in terms of goal setting, which has always been something that I have struggled with, the idea of goal setting and smart goals and that kind of an outlook. And I really like what he says about not focusing on measurable progress, but focus on doing what is right and true each day. And to me, I kind of exhaled and said, that to me made a lot of sense that if you focus on that, you will reach your goals. It's just in a differently measured way. So my think away is what could it look like to take one day and say, today, I'm going to focus on what is right and true. And then to see how does that day go? What have you learned? What have you experienced at the end of the day? And what does it mean to then do the same thing tomorrow? 
I am going to uh, take the prerogative of being the host and the last one to share thinkaways, and I'm going to share two. The first is this really simple way of evaluating quality of work and what it is to be successful. It talks about one of the leaders that he coached who made a tough decision and was evaluating success based on wanting to have done good work, done well for the right reasons. And so part of my thinkaway is what if good work done well for the right reasons was how you judged success. Would that change how you are showing up as a leader? And then the final thing is there's a quote from Parker Palmer from On the Brink of Everything. uh, And the quote is, I can't think of a sadder way to die than with the knowledge that I never showed up in this world as who I really am. I can't think of a more graced way to die than with the knowledge that I showed up here as my true self, the best I knew how, able to engage life freely and lovingly because I had become fierce with reality. And I just offer that this book is a companion if what you want to do as a leader is become fierce with reality. This was Leadership Arts Review. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcast. You can find more information and additional resources on our website at podcast.leadershipartsreview.com and continue the conversation by following us on Twitter under leadership underscore arts and Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn under Leadership Arts Review. Leadership Arts Review is a Four Impala production. Music adapted by Four Impala from Nathaniel Wyvern's Sanctuary of the Sky Gods under license. Thanks.